0: Hello, and welcome to Raising Health, where we explore the real challenges and enormous opportunities facing entrepreneurs who are building the future of health. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Ben Oakes, the co-founder and CEO of Scribe Therapeutics. He is joined by Vijay Pandey, founding general partner at A16Z Bio and Health. Ben talks about applying an engineering perspective to biology and how that works at Scribe, So we've chosen to apply engineering because if you start with Cas9, not only are you kind of weighed down by all of the baggage that that molecule has, you also are weighed down by all of the additional challenge of using it within the broader context of the field. If you're digging for gold or metagenomic gold, you have no guarantee that that's actually going to result
1: in a molecule that actually works.
0: He also talked about how he sees genetic medicine maturing and what the potential
1: impact for patients could be. You're alluding to something even grander. You're alluding to like maybe getting out in front of diseases sound like, or did I mishear you? you? You
0: did not mishear me. That is what I think the future of genetic medicine is. I think yeah. it is the ability to modify our own health to live longer and healthier lives, right? And it that is very much something that, the, while the paradigm of treatment today is about get a disease and then we'll see what we can do. I think the paradigm treatment tomorrow is gonna be very much, let's prevent you from getting that disease in the first place. And I think we can all get behind that, um, but it is gonna have to come with that shift in mindset of how do we think about preventing disease versus treating it. You're listening to Raising Health from A16Z Bio and Health.
1: Ben, thank you so much for joining us on Raising Health. Yeah, it's a delight to be here. Thank you, Vijay. You you first started using CRISPR, developing CRISPR when you were at Berkeley in Jennifer Doudna's lab. You know, I'd love to hear about A, what it was like to be at that lab at that time, you know, such a historic moment, a historic lab. And, you know, how did that work in terms of your transition from like PhD students, postdoc to CEO? I
0: had been engineering genome editing proteins actually even back B.C. or before CRISPR. And when Jennifer published that work, though, I realized that all my work that was doing up till then (laughs) was essentially obsolete. So I came out to work with Jennifer very early on in 2013, you know, just after that seminal work was published in 2012. And it was a really interesting time, I think, in that lab to the specifics of it. Jennifer's lab is a biochemistry lab, right? It's structural biology, biochemistry. And... When I joined, there was only a small portion of the lab that was actually working on these genome editing proteins. Really, on these bacterial immune systems, there was still a lot of other really exciting work that was going on in, you know, biochemistry of RNAi and many other kind of interesting and unique bacterial uh, bacterial immune systems or bacterial just RNA interacting systems. But when I joined, there was a cohort, a very small cohort of a few of us who had really seen the light already, knew what CRISPR was going to ultimately be able to impact. And we had joined for the sole and single purpose of taking these technologies as far as they could possibly go.
1: Well, let me, let me stop you there. So what did
0: you know? And this is something I've kind of waxed poetic on before. So I'll, I'll kind of keep brief on it. But when you're engineering zinc your nucleases, which was what I was doing before, you have to buy into the concept of genetic medicine, like wholly and with every ounce of your being, because engineering those things requires, you know, selections of massive size and massive scale. And I was doing that. I was, you know, screening a billion molecules, you know, at a clip very frequently every week to find one that could bind three base pairs. And so I had already bought deeply into the fact that the future of medicine meant treating the underlying cause, which was the genome in almost all instances, or at least using the genome to modify disease. And I think that was, at that point, I think in many people's minds, but also seen as some hypothetical future world that we might get to at some point. But I, I knew that the real challenge was just simply, at that point, was being able to bind enough base pairs of DNA that you could be specific in the human genome. And CRISPR solved it like that, right? Mm. Just, you know, out of the box, you could use an RNA to get 20 base pair specificity. That's significantly over what you need to be specific in the human genome. And therefore, you know, like a light went on, you all of a sudden had the ability, if these molecules were going to work, to modify the genome wherever you wanted in a very short period of time.
1: It's exciting that all of you were there for that vision. I can imagine it, that was in the air, that was in the lab, but still to go from sort of let's study this in the lab to actually start a company, that's a big jump. Like yeah. how, how, did that, how did you make that jump? What was that like?
0: Uh, that's interesting. So I spent about three and a half years in Jennifer's lab. Actually, I was joint with another professor by the name of Dave Savage, and I actually worked between those labs applying my engineering expertise to build better versions of CRISPR molecules or more interesting versions of CRISPR molecules, if you will. And that work basically made me realize a couple things. One was just how malleable these systems were. We could get away with doing a lot of engineering to them and really fundamentally change the parameters under which they operated, the characteristics that they had was
1: that a surprise It
0: was very much a surprise to me right i mean Mm. one of the first things we did in um in dave and jennifer's lab was i essentially did a circular permutation project which is essentially inverting this enzyme in on itself flipping it around entirely and that works for some enzymes especially small globular proteins but to see this massive molecular machine with multiple domains that all have to rearrange in 15 different ways in order to bind an rna and then have to do it again in order to cut dna to see that be possible there was fairly surprising to I think a lot of us. It felt like it was clay in our hands. Oh, wow. Yeah, it felt like we could sculpt it and hone it. That led me to about three and a half years later graduating and being awarded this fellowship that was really about starting my own lab to use molecular engineering, specifically for CRISPR, on CRISPR molecules with a much more focused goal of taking them from bacterial immune system and really turning them into genome editing scalpel, right? Because again, the CRISPR genome editing system is not a genome editing system, it's a bacterial immune system that actually serves as a defense system. Mm-hmm. And so while well, we had been doing engineering of all these different ways to make interesting synthetic biology switches, to make CRISPR systems that could sense and respond to their environment, like le- little self-contained machines that would turn on or off based on whether or not something had happened inside a cell, The realization that Dave and Jennifer and I had was that the world was not yet focused on essentially transitioning these natural technologies into human-controlled
1: technologies. You know, maybe just a double-click on that. Where do you decide, okay, so this becomes a company? I thought I was always going to become a PI
0: and do molecular engineering in all sorts of really interesting ways. But what we saw was that Again, there was this really big gap, and still, today there's this huge gap in what others are doing with CRISPR systems. Very few people are thinking about molding them to the particular therapeutic characteristics that that they need. And with that, we also saw that that gap meant that there was a lack of resources going to it.
1: Could you tell us a, a bit about like scribe, you know, what are you doing with Scribe? in particular, you know, how does your approach differ from other? Companies.
0: Scribe is a molecular engineering organization that is focused on, again, engineering these bacterial immune systems and transforming them into genome editing scalpels. And what I mean by that is we're highly dedicated to using engineering to make genome editing more potent, significantly safer, more deliverable, and then evolving it beyond just its double-strand break genome editing roots to enable things like epigenetic silencing. What this really enables us to do is to build the right tool for the job. And this, you know, this all uh, kind of operates under the auspice of something we call CRISPR by design. And we actually don't start with engineering necessarily as the foundation so much as we start with where we wanna go first. And then we engineer towards that, towards that ultimate goal. And I think that's what really sets Scribe apart, again, from really the rest of the field, is both the capabilities and the capability set that we have in or in terms of really highly evolving these molecules, you know, taking step after step through sequence space to make them both more potent and more specific at the same time, while also really maintaining this exquisite focus on the the areas that we're working in, which actually we, we just revealed recently, it has a, a, a lot of depth in cardiometabolic disease.
1: I look at other companies uh, and basically you know, they're using Cas nine mm-hmm. or they're using or they're identifying uh, um, editing systems that you know from from other genomes and so on. Why choose the engineering route? What would you get from that approach?
0: Yeah. so I think it's really important to look at the fundamental characteristics of your system, and I, we don't think that either of those approaches really gets you that. So we've chosen to apply engineering because if you start with Cas nine, not only are you kind of weighed down by all of the baggage that that molecule has, you also are weighed down by all of the additional challenge of using it within the broader context of the field, right? If you're digging for gold or metagenomic gold, you have no guarantee that that's actually going to result in a molecule that actually works. Mm -hmm. And if it does, very often it just looks very similar to some of the other molecules that came before it. What we've actually done is kind of taken the best of both worlds and then improved upon that even further. So we have entirely novel metagenomically discovered molecules kind of pulled out of Jennifer's lab. We've then chosen the best of those molecules for specific characteristics like the ability to be delivered via any delivery vehicle, like its cleavage pattern and how that allows us to modify the genome differently. And then we've taken that molecule and iterated through cycle after cycle of engineering to take it from a molecule that edits the human genome but not well to one that edits the human genome to completion, even at very low doses. And that's something that, again, we haven't seen anyone else in the space do. These molecules are engineered uh, or are changed over 100 to- different, essentially in you know, over 100 different locations compared to the original. And every you know year
1: we, we are continuing to improve that. Well, that's kind of amazing because also like a hundred different locations. So there's like uh, 20 to the hundred different sequences you could possibly have, which is just an outstanding, uh, you know, that's like a mind blowing number. There's, uh, you could never get anywhere close to assessing them. So how do you find these sequences? How do you do engineer?
0: That is exactly the challenge, right? And what we have to do is build these very large libraries um, again, of tens of thousands to tens of millions of different proteins. Or different RNAs, and it depends on what characteristic we're trying to select for, but we've actually built proprietary screens and selections for particular characteristics. This is for activity. This one's for mm-hmm. specificity. This one's for modifying your targeting range. We then apply that. We actually, I think what's important again at Scribe is that we track every single change we're making and we check it, its fitness or its activity. So we can then essentially utilize that data to better inform the next time we build this screen, the selection, or this library. So this kind of creates an iterative feedback loop that allows you to step fairly quickly through sequence space towards these more perfect enzymes. Ultimately, this has to be coupled with a really quantitative and and high throughput uh, assaying system that allows you to look at all of the things you wanna test and you've discovered. Um, And that's another really important feature that we've built at Scribe that allows us to, again, find the right mutation take that and then test that against a stack set of another 10,000, hundred thousand different changes. But it is a process, right? You do walk through sequence space. It's not like we get a hundred all at once, like some of these ML approaches that are more generative, that just kind of pick you up and jump you down. Every step Mm -hmm. we're making, we're making for a reason.
1: What's interesting about gene editing with something like your system or other CRISPR systems is the possibility that you could have an engine, an enzyme that maybe doesn't change very much, but that for different things you edit, you have different guides and different parts that can be swapped out. The modularity of this is much more reminiscent of other areas, engineering, swapping out the engine from one car to another yeah, car. Yeah. How are we going to work with the FDA so that we can optimize the results for patients?
0: I think that's a, and a really important, um and still ill-defined set of questions i think the concept that the crispr protein itself can be the same protein from from drug to drug is one that you know everyone understands and we are thinking about there is a lot of work going into also the concept of like n of 1 trials and once you have enough clinical data the the burden of proof becomes a little bit lower for understanding how a molecule be- behaves but I don't know that we've ever seen anything that has the potential to be as modular as CRISPR. Um, mm-hmm. And so we are in uncharted territory from that perspective. I'd also say that while the modularity is, is really key, there are at the same time many instances where the protein, again, we might engineer it from one target to another. We might swap out its specificity because target A needs greater specificity than target B or because we want target C to be allele specific. And therefore, you need to kind of fine tune these things. Those are small changes still.
1: Could you imagine that, let's say, would it work to get the enzyme approved? And and then you are able to sort of uh, have rap- uh, accelerated approval of the other parts? Or what, what could you imagine Would it would look like? No,
0: it's interesting. I think it, it absolutely depends on the delivery system as well. So in the case yeah. of a lot of things that we're doing, it's an mRNA delivery. And, you know, once we've manufactured a batch of mRNA and we understand how that works, you know, that package, that part of the package is can become very modular. Um, mm-hmm. But, for example, the genotoxicity part of the package, which is really looking at, for those who don't know, the potential for off-targets from a CRISPR system and really trying to f- ensure that we only build CRISPR systems that have no off-target editing, that is always... uh combination of the molecule itself and the guide RNA, and that will always have to be repeated regardless. So I think there's absolutely a lot of acceleration you can get from using the same, for example, LNP, the same mRNA, um, and maybe even the same sequence of the guide RNA up until what is the targeting region. But then there are certain aspects like
1: the genotoxicity package that are always going to have to be redone. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Another sort of key stakeholder in the ecosystem will be the payers, right? And we're entering kind of a unique time because uh, typically in therapeutics we try to avoid the word cure, because like most drugs don't Do cure. Maybe yeah. a few cases like infectious disease. No, you know you are of that infection in the moment, but normally you know you treat it. But like CRISPR could really be a cure in some cases, especially in uh, genetically or genetic origin diseases. But it's a one-time fee, right? Mm-hmm. And so how's that going to work inside our insurance system and our payer system?
0: I believe there will be changes.
1: I I believe
0: okay. and my hope, my sincerest hope is that there will be changes. And and I think you're absolutely right. We I actually tend to avoid the word cure altogether because I think it's a really loaded word in many ways. And I think even some of the best drugs that are out there that are approaching that may be just approaching that, not necessarily getting there. And we want to Ensure that we're being fully honest with patients as as well as payers. But I think that the results that are coming out of some of the CRISPR trials today do appear to be essentially functional cures. Now, the thing that I think is critically important to recognize is that if you can keep, for example, in this instance, sickle patients out of the hospital, you can save the system significant, significant costs that, in many instances, outweigh the the price of the therapy, even if it's the one-time very high price. Uh What I would be very interested in, though, and I think a lot of folks are, is working with other other parts of the ecosystem to try to build more pay-for-performance plans, right? If you can demonstrate each and every year that you've reduced your event rate, for example, in Sickle, by 80% or greater or 100%, You know, there's another installment that the essentially insurance company is willing to pay because you've essentially prevented a hospitalization that would have cost 10 times more. And I I think that that's where a lot of the single payer systems are going to be really interesting, you know, primordial soup of innovation, if you will, right?
1: Well, and so when you say single payer, do you mean like in the US, like Medicare, or do you mean like what do you mean? I think it can mean any one
0: of those things. So, single single payer large systems, I also think that there's a lot of really exciting um evolution of thinking uh in, in medicine outside of the United States um mm. and I think that you know there outside the united states is is important to really work with and and um explore into for many reasons
1: yeah, well, and let's talk about the uh, one of the last groups in that ecosystem, so uh former partners, you and the scribe team have been you know super successful there. Uh, could you talk about your approach? How you uh, think about partnerships, especially with you know companies that you've worked with, like Sanofi or Lilly?
0: People often ask me this. I talk to many other young entrepreneurs as well, who ask me, like, you know, how do you get these partnerships? And there's always this. There's always a desire to find a secret sauce. Mm-hmm. What I can say is there really isn't one. You know, what we've done at Scribe is really search through the field, and and try to find people who are deeply aligned with our vision for the future of medicine, right? And our vision is we need to be able to treat patients and modify their genomes in a way that has the potential to be curative, and at the very least is incredibly impactful. And then within that, you can see pretty clearly what pharma teams are that forward-looking, and who, quite frankly, are still addicted to small molecules. And I think there's there's no right or wrong answer, but you can understand v- pretty well who shares the passion for changing what medicine looks like and who's who's happy with the status quo. And that's what we've done at Scribe is really find folks who share this vision of not only changing the f- what the future of medicine looks like, but also doing so by building our own tools and technologies that will allow us to dictate what that future looks like, right? And that's who we've been really incredibly fortunate enough to find with both Sanofi and Lily. You know, we've done both of these deals really in the past year or so. One of the other things that's incredibly important is what are those partners bringing to the table? And obviously both Sanofi and Lily are these massive um, multinational corporations that bring tons of expertise across many different areas. But they also actually have brought, in addition to that expertise, some interesting technologies to the table as well. So, if, you know, a good example of this is our work with Sanofi, that is targeted at sickle cell, but rather than requiring patients to get these cells pulled out of your body and myeloablation or really extensive chemotherapy to put them back, you know, the vision is to be able to provide uh, a treatment directly to patients in in vivo and therefore really, again, kind of leapfrog where the field is, even within genome editing, Um, even within the, the recent approval for genome editing therapies, and yet again, transform what is available to patients.
1: And go a little farther into the future, you know? So like uh, CRISPR's and, and people's use of uh, gene editing is continuing to evolve. So there's like two steps to that. One is perhaps, and you talked about this in your recent TED Talk about um, uh, basically trying to eliminate chronic conditions. Let's maybe start with that one. Yeah. Like what does that look like?
0: Again, I think it's we now have the genetic understandings to start to put this in the place. But what it requires is building the technologies that are truly safe enough and effective enough to be brought to use at scale. I think if you think about treating a smaller patient population of a couple thousand, you, you have a certain risk tolerance, right? Especially for a rare genetic disease that is, is really devastating. If you're talking about treating a couple million or tens of millions of people, your risk tolerance is much lower, especially because there are drugs that even though they have major problems with efficacy as well as compliance, you know there are other options available. That being said, it's it, it really is super clear that in you know creating a drug that doesn't have a compliance issue that doesn't have the efficacy issue would transform something like you know uh, a dyslipidemia, uh, uh, bad cholesterol, or L, uh, you know high LDLC dyslipidemia. You know, it's estimated that you know this was done back almost a decade ago, and even then, they were estimating that if statins had perfect compliance, you would save the U.S. healthcare system twenty-five billion
1: dollars a year. Now you're talking about like chronic diseases, but and like there's a ton of chronic diseases. I mean, cholesterol is just one thing. But then you, you you're alluding to something even grander. You're alluding to like maybe getting out front. Of diseases sound like, or did I mishear you?
0: you? You did not mishear me. That is what I think the future of genetic medicine is. I think yeah. it is the ability to modify our own health to live longer and healthier lives. Right, and it that is very much something that the while the paradigm of treatment today is about get a disease and then we'll see what we can do. I think the paradigm of treatment tomorrow is going to be very much let's prevent you from getting that disease in the first place, and. Yeah. I think we can all get behind that, um, but it is going to have to come with that shift in mindset of how do we think about preventing disease versus treating it?
1: Okay. So what do we need to do to go from where we are now to, to there? What's, what's missing? Well, I can speak from Scribe's perspective
0: and my perspective, yeah. which is a technological perspective, which is only a small a small component of it, but it is about building these tools, these genome editing technologies that are safer and more effective. We're also highly excited about epigenetic technologies, although maybe we save that for another time. But there is the ability now to essentially, without even permanently modifying the genome, turn off certain genes and then still have the ability to turn them back on later if you want. So you can imagine a paradigm where you can to change something to make you healthier. And then if you wanted to at a later time, change
1: it back. I love the way you describe, you know, coming to the lab and being excited about the technology and having that vision for what could be. And like, it's fun, you know, now some years later, how far you've gotten and, you know, talking about bringing drugs to market and all these things. What message would you have for the grad students that are in lab right now? And they're uh, they're excited about their technology Thinking about how to bring it to patients, basically, right? I mean, that's what commercialization really is. Any advice that you wish someone told you? It's
0: going to always take be longer and harder than you expect it to be. Yeah, I think that would be the advice that people, of course, will tell you that. But you just, you know, when you first, when you when you first get into it, when you're young, you don't believe it, right? I think, yeah. I mean, the 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 best advice, and this is the advice that I give all of the folks that we have at Scribe going to grad school, and the folks who I've brought into grad school, is like, you really want to think in terms of five to 10 year increments and, and really i tend to think in 10 year increments okay. um when you start out grad school everything that you think is hot then i'll tell you what was hot when i started out grad school biofuels
1: yeah <laughs> yeah that's right, right? um yeah.
0: Yeah. now nothing against biofuels nothing at all
1: but uh, except uh it's hard to make something that's a uh, hundred dollars a barrel yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to make it cheaper. I
0: mean, but you know, the Innovative, Innovative Genomics Institute at UC Berkeley now occupies the building that was built as the Energy Biosciences Building to yeah. make biofuels because things things change, right? Sure. If you this is and this is what I think I was actually very good at was looking at okay, where genome editing is today is nowhere where it needs to be, but if if it's successful ten years from now, this is where you know this is going to be hugely impactful and. Remarkably, and I I nailed this one. This was pure luck, right? But 10 years later, we have our first approval, right? Uh, For a drug that's a genome editing drug. What is that
1: luck? Uh, Why do you call that luck?
0: I call that luck because it's, I mean, it depends on how you define luck, right? Luck is a lot of (laughs) preparation. It's a lot of, you know, we make our own luck, but I think it, it just as easily could have happened that the CRISPR molecules that were originally discovered or CRISPR, it could have easily happened that CRISPR was not discovered right and or it was 10 years later and i think when i started out working on genome editing crispr wasn't a thing and so that's i think the the luck aspect of it was you know jennifer and her colleagues were already working on this technology um you know really exploring it and by 2012 they had
1: found a good molecule that could serve as the basis for it Yeah. yeah yeah i wonder if you knew how long it would take would you still have done it there is
0: still no better better or no more exciting thing to do than I think what we're doing. So absolutely. I mean, if, if I knew it was going to take twice as long, you know, I think I would still do it.
1: Thank you so much, Ben. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for being on, uh, raising health. Of
0: course. No, uh, as always, thank you for the invite. And maybe next time we talk about epigenetic modifiers.
1: Perfect. Perfect.
0: Thank you for listening to raising health. Raising Health is hosted and produced by me, Chris Tatiosian, and me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the bio and health team at A16Z. The show is edited by Phil Hegseth. If you want to suggest topics for future shows, you can reach us at RaisingHealth at A16Z.com. Finally, please rate and subscribe to our show. The content here is for informational purposes only should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures.